Oscar Poker. after seeing you yesterday at the Hugo screening. I know, same here. That was so much fun, that movie. So I thought we could, uh, uh, in, in lieu of not having Phil with us, uh, uh, we can just jump right into Hugo and then talk about, uh, you know, J. Edgar and then mm-hmm. talk about uh, the, uh, the screening last uh, Tuesday, right? It was only last Tuesday of, um, that I went to anyway of, um, of young adults. So those three interesting topics. Mm-hmm. Okay, we can do that. Um, so let's start off with yourself. I wrote something about uh, Hugo, but what did you think? And then did, are you, did you put anything up? I'm sorry, I haven't checked. No, uh, no, it's okay. I did. I put something up last night. I, um, they said we, we, were, we weren't really allowed to write review reviews, but we could put up our extended comments. That's and, what I thought I put up. I didn't think it was a review but, you know, whatever. Yeah, I don't know what kind of trouble that's going to cause. I don't think they can really control it. I think they should just say, you know, anybody can write whatever they want because obviously somebody from a long lead newspaper or whatever is going to want to write a review if all these web people get to do it, you know. It's not really fair. So. Yeah, there's also a view that, uh, that uh, Ann Thompson, among others, uh, feel that it's some kind of um, uh, skewed way of, uh, of looking at uh, the re- reviewing process or the embargoes that they like to, you know, that they ask for and they and people give them. But once you have had a public screening, uh, which this film had, even though it was a work print version at the New York Film Festival, which everyone that I read that went to that screening wrote about. Yeah. So how can you say, okay, the window's closed now, even though we're showing it again in a slightly more refined form so you know yeah i think we're seeing for the first time in since i've since the web has really taken off i've been doing this before the you know the blog was really popular i've been i've been around that long and i was around when you know it was only the only early reviews you could get was the hollywood reporter and variety and that's it you didn't get other reviews people who wrote on blogs or websites which were simply not considered there wasn't the same kind of information sharing we have now which is so instant and um, but what you're seeing is you're really seeing this year more than any other year is the studios really trying hard to control that mm-hmm. chatter, you know, trying hard to control their movies being totally dismantled before they ever even open to the public, you know, for money's for money reasons and for Oscar reasons, you know. Um, but I think in the case of Hugo, they I don't think it's a movie they need to worry about that way. Yeah. Okay, so go into, I see your piece, it's, you're calling it Scorsese's brilliant Hugo, 
cinema's earliest origins through the lens of its latest achievement, uh, advancement. So if you can just uh, run down your basic reactions to the whole thing. Uh, it, yeah, we all, we all love the last half hour, 25 minutes, whatever it is. The, the conclusion is dazzling. I loved it. I was in heaven. But I'm not sure about the uh, more um, conventional and somewhat familiar uh, feeling uh, first two-thirds, which is basically young kid trying to survive, not get caught by the bad guy who's this train station cop and, you know, uh, and not uh, uh, having articulation problems, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, um, just being simple, plain. This is my father. My father did this. I, um, you know, I live here. I'm desperate. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, he doesn't, something, somehow those words can't get out of his mouth. Is he, is he Asperger's syndrome? What's the problem? Yeah. I think, I think I look at it a little bit differently than, than what appears to be the consensus among, 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 year old males. I don't know. But what, what I see is I look at it as, you know, maybe it's my background in filmmaking as a film student. And I, uh, I look at it as, wow, Martin Scorsese using 3D for the first time. And so from the very first frame, I was caught up in the story as well. But what I was watching was a master <laughs> of the craft trying this new medium and what he was doing with it and how he was setting up shots. And I was dazzled from the very first moment all the way through. I never had a moment where, I, where it stopped me and I said, wow, this isn't, you know, this is familiar, blah, blah, blah. It Are you is. kidding me? Very so familiar. what? I mean, so it's what, really? Of a, of a children's movie, you know. Ooh, the bad adults are going to come get me. They're going to put me in that cage that that poor other little kid gets thrown into and put into the, you know, some horrible orphanage somewhere. Yeah. This is standard stuff that you've sure, seen. Sure, of course. That's what it's supposed to be. It's like the artist. It's supposed to be standard stuff. I mean, when you're dealing with children mythology, there's only a few ways you can go with it. You know, a movie like Pan's Labyrinth um, sort of took that, to a different level. It was a much more, you know, horrific story. It was it wasn't as mythic and familiar as this, but when you're dealing with fairy tales kind of thing, grim fairy tales or anything involving children's mythology, you're going to have to dwell in in semi-familiar territory. So this was like Dickens. This was like, you know, I mean, to me it was it was the best of children's storytelling. We should review very briefly the uh basic plot so that people who haven't seen the film or haven't read about it. It's about a young man named Hugo Cabret who is an orphan whose father has passed. By the way, his father is played by Jude Law. I didn't understand that when I saw the film. Did you mm -mm. see Jude Law at any point? I saw him. I just didn't, I didn't get that it was his father. I have to go back and watch the movie again. I mean, the thing about Scorsese is you don't see his movies once. You see them several times and you pick up more and more. I didn't even see Salvador Dali in the cafe scene, for instance. So I'm going to have to go back and watch it again. I know yeah. he layered it. I know he layered it because that's what he does. You know, I still, I watch The Departed. I watch Raging Bull, these movies. Like, they're like Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. They're so dense. They're so layered with nuance that you have to watch them again and again and again, and then you eventually you catch up with what he's trying to do. He packs his movies. You know, he gives his audience the benefit of the doubt. He never dumbs it down. And that's what I love about him as a director. And I'm just so, I was so enthralled by this movie. Even just on a story level, I was enthralled with it. But We're from a filmmaking great. standpoint, it's just, you're, you're not going to see anything like that this year. I mean, you're not. It blows Harry Potter out of the water. <laughs> just it was a, um, uh, um, uh, a engrossing <clears throat> little children's fable, as far as it goes. But but if you want us to talk about the story, sure, and you can talk about The Shining, 
Stanley Kubrick's The Shining as a movie about a guy who goes nuts in a hotel. Yeah. You can talk about it that way. Or you can talk about fucking Kubrick's crane shots and the way he films that little kid rolling around in the hallway. And you're seeing the, the, them in the maze or the kid in the snow retracing his steps. Or, I mean, those kind of scenes in filmmaking, they are, you know, they can't be repeated. And so what if the story is... You know, maybe not the most exciting story you've ever ever heard, but it doesn't matter. You're still witnessing. Here's another thing: it's not see he. It's not just that it's not terribly engrossing to see how he's going to outwit or escape the clutches of, of Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, or perhaps uh, you know find his way into a trusting relationship. But I have no interest in the kid who can't blurt out the words. That book was my father's or it was mine. You know, he couldn't say it. Uh, I just want my book back. But who did it? You thief. So he decides to keep it. And then Emelis, uh, played by Ben Kingsley, uh, gives him a folded cloth napkin inside of which are ashes. A heartless and cruel thing to do to a child. Mm-hmm. What are we supposed to make of that? What kind of an animal does that to a little kid who's... You know, whether it's stolen, it's something that he cherishes. Yeah. Care, you know, that was the- something I loved about it because, <clears throat> you know, movies today in the post-Oprah era are so, you know, about coddling children and not about how things really used to be. And that's what I liked about Hugo. You know, Sasha Baron Cohen, he, he grabs that kid. He, you know, manhandles him. He throws him in the tank. It's like that's not the kind of stuff you see in movies about kids today. Everything's so easy on them, and they're all the big heroes of the story. And, you know, yeah, Hugo's the hero of this, but he also has to go through a lot. They're not easy on him. You know, any time he's hungry, he has to steal food. And, you know, Ben Kingsley is an embittered old man. Can I ask a question? Uh, It comes to a surprise to Sasha Baron Cohen that uh, Hugo's father, played by Jude Law, has passed away. He's been found dead in the Seine. He had drowned. He was in, had a drinking problem. And um, Well, that's, so a, that's, right? that's a spoiler, first of all. But secondly, I don't know if that's Jude Law. Is it, isn't it his uncle that dies? I, okay, but whoever it was that's winding the clocks, who's getting paid, is dead. So he says that means we've been, you know, he's been employed by the train station. And he has been found to be deceased, found in the, in the River Seine. So who's been cashing the checks? How does Hugo Cabret, uh, he doesn't, how does he, he doesn't get the checks? Where do the checks go to? I mean, you know. Well, when, when have... he gets, a, Sasha Baron Cohen gets that phone call from the police, he gets to go pick up everything. The kid hasn't been getting the money, obviously, or he would be eating better. Uh-huh. Well, then what I'm saying is they've been paying him somehow, some way. They've been giving a check to somewhere. Someone's been... Uh, winding the clocks and making sure that they stay on time. That's what Hugo's been doing in his father's absence. Right. But they've been paying his father somehow, some way, what, sending a check by mail? Probably. Probably. The check goes into mail and it sits in a mailbox and goes on cash. Nobody's going to check up on that. You know, I knew a guy who, um, who died and his friends went over to clean up his house and yeah. they found... Like almost five hundred dollars worth of uncashed checks uh-huh. over his lifetime of checks he just never cashed. Nobody ever found out about it or knew about it or called him or anything. Nobody thought about it. It just what went they, un, unnoticed, they, undetected. All those checks from all those different people and all those different industries and corporations. 
<clears throat> the uh, the, uh, the film is also extended. I'm telling you, it's not that the film. Is if still- if 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 somebody pays me a check, like Fox Searchlight sends me a check, mm-hmm. and I don't cash it, they're not going to write me and say, "Did you not cash your check?" Even in this day and age, they wouldn't. They wouldn't care. They wouldn't notice. You know. Well, <clears throat> again, the uh, if the kid is able to do this, it just doesn't add up. I mean, if he's able to do what his father did, and his father was drunk, why don't they just let the kid do it? it doesn't make any sense. What is it? Why do they have to be chasing after him? It just it hasn't been thought through very much. You know, he's a very able kid. He he knows how to uh, activate the uh, uh, what's it called? The animatron. The uh, the little automaton. Rope, yeah. Right. You know. Right. And he's very bright and uh, resourceful. Just, you know, why is there this rote predatory thing directed towards him? And I still, just to bring it back, I don't understand why a filmmaker, even a bitter filmmaker, would treat a kid so cruelly and horribly as to burn uh, a possession of his. I mean, did he not burn it? Was he just fooling him? Was the, was the, I never, I don't, what happened to the book? Did that, uh, was that in fact burned, that book? I think he was just, you know, the guy was just every, you know, everything kind of died when when his his creativity died, you know, and and that's what Hugo is about ultimately. It's about having, it's about the the need for creative output and working as an artist to survive. As important as food and breathing, this is the stuff that keeps us going. It's certainly what's kept Marty Martin Scorsese going all these years, you know, and. For me, the bigger themes far outweighed the tiny little details of that movie. I'm sure that as you watch it again, you'll you'll understand more of it, the story. I don't think I ever thought, I mean, I don't know, because maybe because I grew up in kind of survival mode, like not quite like that, but similar to that. And I know that you're not always thinking about big picture, you know, common sense stuff. You're thinking about day-to-day survival. How do I get from point A to point B to point C today? How do I steal that apple today? How do I get away with not getting kidnapped today. I'm I've freezing heard. cold. I'm starving. And I've yet... I've an artist, a writer, a filmmaker of any kind, actor, who will not tell you straight out what they were good at and, and they're about their period when they were really hitting it well and they understood themselves and they were connecting and, you know, their art was working and they're getting paid. Nobody will hide it like that. Nobody. It makes, you know, I can see being bitter, but nobody's going to hide the fact that they were at the top of their game. I mean, the man was very successful, George Mele, um, and he was not bright enough to figure out that people wanted more realism and that two realers in you know, a comedic vein or, you know, westerns or, you know, uh, you know, you couldn't roll with the times, change with the times, whatever. But but nobody is going to hide that. It just made no sense to me at all, from what wow. I know of people that are have been accomplished. You know, people if they if they if they've been in a good place and they've lost it, you know, and they don't don't get the work anymore, or whatever. They will tell you about this all night long. You know, about how it worked for them because they they're very proud of it. Some people Some will hide that. But Hugo opens at a time when they. You know, when when he stopped making films and when his films were destroyed, they didn't know that the film was going to go anywhere. It was something to be kind of ashamed of and embarrassed of in his mind, what he was doing. But film... Uh, it's it's it, very similar to the artist, by the way, in terms of that. That part of it is similar because that's what happens to the guy and the artist, too. He's sort of selected out as a silent film guy and he can't roll with the times and he becomes just as desolate and destitute and bummed out and depressed as this guy. The thing about um, that George character is that other people know 
his fame, like that one scholar and other people, yep. but he himself doesn't know that. He doesn't know that, you know, people have been revering his work. I've seen that many times. You know, great film critics will revive a director's work that everybody else has forgotten about. I mean, God, it happens all the time now. Well, it's just, it's a conceit. The story can't, this is what the story is. You know, the man is bitter and he doesn't want to know, well, doesn't want anybody to know about that he, what he did. He wants to kind of suppress it. And he is gradually brought around to, um, you know, his, his, his spirit awakens again when people come to him and say, we loved your stuff and then it changes. So that's what the story is. But I felt without boring people, because really people who don't know the story and haven't seen the film, haven't read the reviews, they're going to be bored by this conversation. Or annoyed at us for giving away too many spoilers. That's more likely. <laughs> but here's here's the problem with it. It just should have been more compact. All uh, fantastic. No way. All animation has to be more in the realm of ninety minutes, eighty minutes around there. It could no have... way. Should should should. There's some little box so, we're supposed yeah. to put movies in. I Easily mean, are we supposed did. to all agree that there's some homogenous way to do a movie and, and a story to be told? No, I don't think so. It works. It doesn't work. And this movie works in my mind. It does not work. It is tedious for the first two thirds. And if they had shortened mm. it, it wouldn't be tedious. It's only them? tedious if you don't if you don't have your eyes open to what Scorsese is doing cinematically with the 3D. If you're not digging that, if you're not noticing that, if you don't care about filmmaking and great directing and groundbreaking um, visuals like he's, he's delivering from the very first moment. I mean, if you're not fucking, you know, totally enthralled by the cinematography and the scope of how he's creating Paris and what he's doing, yeah, you're going to be bored. But guess what? Don't go see a movie like that then. Well, you have to uh, uh, integrate uh, tension and interest, and there has to be no air and no fat. <clears throat> yeah, if there's one kind of movie, yeah. It can't be just about chops and how beautifully shot this. Sure, is. it can. No, I don't agree with that. I've never agreed with that. It oh. has to Stanley Kubrick, right. Clockwork Orange. Uh, well, that's um, um, a, a, a moral theme that is gradually uh, unfolded. It, 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 you know, there's the you can break it down into three chapters. The um, um, uh, you know, I don't know. That didn't have a lot of fat on it. It kind of whipped right along. I read the book Clockwork Orange uh, when it when it came out, and I don't know. I know, but I, with I, Kubrick, I felt okay. with Kubrick and Scorsese, I mean, these are directors that you you go see to you go see their movies because, yeah, they're good storytellers. The the story is part of it, sure. But they're doing something different than other directors are doing. They're doing something visually, especially Scorsese. He's like a painter, you know. And for people to not sort of appreciate that about him, they're just not seeing the big picture. And it'll take like 10, 20 years for them to finally figure it out about that. I'm not saying I'm so far ahead of everybody because I appreciate that. But as a film student, you know, you look at certain kind of directors work a different way. You look at you, you look at someone like Spielberg and you expect it to be all about story with some really great shots thrown in. Like he's great visually, too. Jaws is great. Um yeah. Schindler's List is beautiful. But you go to see Spielberg for story. You go to see Scorsese for his directing, for his directorial eye. The story is there, but usually his stories are cold and removed, like Raging Bull, Aviator, The Departed, which was a little more um, emotionally moving than he's us usually done. But Hugo is a whole different thing from what he usually does. I actually cried at the end of Hugo. So did the guy I was sitting with. It's like, you don't... Um, 
you know, most of Scorsese movies, you don't cry at the end of them. I mean, you never do. You're dazzled by them. They're beautiful and breathtaking. But but Hugo is like, it, it is all of those things. From, what from, is it? That, from that, frame that, one, it's all of those things. But it is also an incredibly moving story. I, I felt I was totally wrapped up with this kid all the way through. I also appreciated, with both this and J. Edgar, I appreciated the director's willingness to take time to give his audience the benefit of the doubt that they can oh. sit there and they can look and they can wonder and they can get, you know, get wrapped up in this world without having to be ushered along, ushered along. Okay. Okay. ADD culture. Can't, can't stop for 10 minutes. Got to move along, move along. You know, give me a break. I'm so sick of that kind of shit. I don't even want to see movies anymore. Half the time. Listen, I'm so sick of the kind of shit where you sit there for 90 minutes waiting for the movie to take off. It finally does the last half hour. And it's, you know, once the melee's history and what he, what you, you can see, what he had been up to, and what his life was like, then it just lifts off the ground. Well, Sorry, I think you know it's, it's something you know that I that I cared about, and it was really transcend transcendent. Really did uh, make my heart float upwards. You know, oh, it did to me from the very beginning. But I would say that for people who feel that way. They're not going to like Hugo. They're they're, they're going to be happy with a movie like Avatar. After like me, sit through the thing and wait for the part that really means something, which is at the end. And I know I'm. But uh, most of them won't even get like the artist is a movie more for today's sort of mindset. It moves along quickly. It's heavy on plot, heavy on story. It doesn't stop and make you you know really spend a lot of time thinking about what you're watching. You know, I, I mean, I, I can't believe anybody would have been bored for one minute of Hugo. You know, to me, it was just. It, it dwarfs everything, almost everything I've seen this year in terms of fil- oh. pure filmmaking. You know. Well, I, with pride, say that nobody is ever going to get my uh, allegiance and, and affection and admiration by just being a master uh, visualist, by just, you know, saying, wow, look at this shot, look at that shot. Uh, that is not enough. It's never been enough. It must be an integrated package. And it has to be thematically uh, meaningful. It has to be narratively tight and purposeful. And it has to have the chops. You can't just do the, the one. That, that has never been enough. Well, and okay. Any, any, no. <clears throat> and I say that I think Hugo has all those things. But even if it doesn't, it can certainly get by on, on just the way it looks. It absolutely could. But it's, it's more than that. It is a story that moved me. I was enchanted by it. I see, have to see a lot of kids' movies because my kid, you know, I've been watching them for 13 years with her. Uh-huh. And they're such pablum, predictable bullshit. And they're just terribly written, awful, you know, pandering to kids, um, not making kids think, making everything always okay, you know. And Hugo uh-huh. is like Pan's Labyrinth to me. It's a movie I would proudly take my daughter to see. Because I know it will make her think, and it will open up doors for her, and it will show her kind of filmmaking and storytelling unlike anything she's ever seen. This is supposed to be something that half appeals to the family audience and half appeals to people like you and me. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> the kids that go to see these things, they don't want to sit for two hours and watch this stuff. They want it over. Uh, you know, kids are not... Uh, but, it, you know, two hours doesn't go well. That's why animated films. Well, too bad for them. Then they can go see, you know, Happy Feet 2, and they can go see Cars 2, and they can go see all the other... I'm not saying it's shit. I haven't seen those movies, so I can't say, but I'm just saying every animated movie out is catered toward short yeah. attention spans and little boys and little girls. I mean, it drives me crazy. It, it is It is making us a very uneducated population, and kids aren't aren't meant to to use their imagination and things. Scorsese said at the end in the Q and A that this is all about the imagination. And right. God, 
as a parent of a 13-year-old girl, I, I, I so badly want movies to kind of bring back the magic and celebrate the imagination the way they used to when I was a kid. They don't anymore. And I, I'm so grateful to him for making this so that she can see it, you know? I tell you, this thing is not going to go down that well with the... Fanboys. I know. Who cares? Because care. it's too long and it, uh, they're not going to even get what the whole ending thing is. They're, gonna, they're not going to feel the, the flutter of the heart the way you and I felt about that last whatever it is. Last I hope they do. I hope they're, they're smart enough to do that. I, I don't know, but I don't really agree with dumbing down films to suit a certain type of person, a, a limited thinking individual. You know, I don't. And I'll argue this movie all the way to the end of the year. I don't know if it'll do well with the Oscars. I don't think... It's th definitely not going to do well with the Oscars, except the production design, Dante uh, Ferretti's uh, production design. Oh, and cinematography. and Cinematography um, is magnificent. The editing and the, the score is great. Yeah. The score is one of the best of the year. Yeah. So if I were... In the it's Academy, and I had to... It's tech thing. It's not going to be a best picture. It's not going to be any of that stuff. So. It might be. I'm oh. not ruling it out for best picture. Not yet. If all the other movies that come out tank, you're going to have to start looking more seriously at Hugo as a potential nominee. Not even a chance. Not one chance. Betcha. Here's the thing. Here's the thing you have to remember. Hugo is going to be up against three, two other movies that are similar. Four, if you want... Three, if you want to count the artist. It's... Hugo is going to go head-to-head -head with War Horse because they're both um, kind of quote-unquote family movies that try to do something a little bit deeper. Yeah. And then Extremely Loud, Incredibly Close is a movie with a, a kid in the center. It's going to yeah. go right up against Hugo. It's going to be those three movies sort of people's choices of which one to pick. And I can tell you right now, I have to see War Horse. I wish they would show it to us. I think it's lame that they haven't shown it to us. And I have to see Extremely Loud. But... Those movies, and we'll just have to see what the Academy does, but I think it's going to come down to choosing between those three, if they do at all. They haven't shown uh, War Horse to you, Sasha, or to me, because of the reaction of that one person whose uh, affiliation and profession even I am not going to reveal, but uh, they had, uh, you know, uh, there's a, a sophisticated <clears throat> film Person. They are a cineast. They get uh, the history. They understand everything. They are. They know their stuff, and they thought it was not Oscar material. They thought it was, um, uh, you know, the, the 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 big line was, you know, the man who made Saving Private Ryan did not make this film. It's not, um, you know, it, it does some things very very well, but it doesn't. Uh, so you're talking about the person who you put on your site, the anonymous person who gave you the review of... I trust this person. Um, no, I know. I trust that person, too. I know who it is, and I trust that person. I'm just saying that... And I do trust this person's taste in terms of um, yeah. kind of having similar Academy taste, like loved yeah. Chicago, right. you know. Um, is pretty easy to please. Yeah. Isn't a isn't a, you know, a snob at all, isn't a, one of those people that you know is going to hate a movie. This person, by the way, shared with me that, uh, that he, she uh, was uh, kind of a fan of The Blind Side, and I admitted to he, she, well, actually, I didn't have that many problems with The Blind Side either. I know I'm supposed to. Uh, certain cabal of critics think it's reprehensible that anybody would like The Blind Side, but I didn't have that many problems <laughs> with it, you know. Did you like it? Were you okay with it? Uh... You hated it? No, I didn't hate it. It's hard to hate, actively hate a movie like that. You know, it's trying to do 
such good. Uh, I was annoyed by it because for two reasons. One, they made Michael O'Hare to be kind of an idiot, a, a, a dumb big bear who's so nice and always has to keep his head bowed. Yes, a massa. I won't yeah. lift my head to Whitey. <laughs> <laughs> that bugged me, especially when I saw the real Michael o- O'Hare in the t- on the on the news, and he is really oh, articulate. Just type his personality and his uh, manner and his vocabulary. How you know he's uh, you're saying he's smarter and oh, rich. way smarter. He does not bow his head. He does not act like oh poor me. You know he doesn't do that at all. He's very articulate, interesting guy. Maybe he was like that when he was a kid. Wasn't he supposed to be like fourteen or what was he? Fifteen, sixteen when well, they he took him. He was a high school kid. Uh-huh. I'm just saying that, you know, okay. I, I'm annoyed with the white culture that needs their Negroes to act that way. That annoys me. I know it makes me uptight and whatever. But having said that, I still was moved by the story. How could you not be? And Sandra Bullock, I thought, was great. You know, I had no problem with her in that part. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm not one of those Sandra Bullock haters. Hey, by the way, can we just stop for one second? I just thought of something. And I was going to write about this today. Uh, it was in the New York Times. And it's a portrait, uh, a really well-written story of a woman who's a one-person, a one-woman mortuary based in Brooklyn. She does everything. She's, uh, uh, she does a, uh, a bar- bargain basement uh, a deal Jesus. for people who can't afford too much. She'll put the deceased into a really nice uh, uh, you know, casket for the viewing during the ceremony, and then takes the body out and puts it into a cardboard, uh, uh, you know, cheap uh, box to be cremated in. She makes all these deals. She, she literally d- does the pickups herself when the person has passed, if it's happened at, at, at home. Uh, she'll uh, drop by with her own purse, and she gets the cop to help her carry the body out. I mean, it's really a, a great movie, I'm telling you. And it's, and it's Sandra Bullock. That's what I thought of immediately. Wow. Oh, it's a movie. No, it's a story now in the New York Times. It will and should be. Oh, okay. It's a, it's, a, it's a great character who does all, you know, because uh, whoever heard of a, a single woman who's, you know, somewhat attractive in her 40s and, uh, you know, uh, blonde and she has nice jewelry and everything. And she's, um, she's, uh, she takes care of stiffs for, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the dead bodies. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a great idea. It'll, it'll, yeah. it'll pass. I hope that they cast it right because totally in my day they would have put Goldie Hawn in that part. <laughs> well, they've got your. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> well, that's what kind of, I was thinking, Sandra Bullock, because she could sell that, and it would people would obviously recoil at the macabre aspects. But it is a business; people do pass away. You want there's that Japanese film that won the Oscar about a guy, a, a service, a business, I guess, of some sort, in which takes care of the dead in a respectful and. Uh, serene and, and soothing way. Remember that mm-hmm. uh, the one that won that everybody thought was not deserving. Remember? Yeah. <laughs> but you know, let's get back to the thing about the critics. It's so weird how this year they're really trying to control the message. Like they were trying to control the message with Hugo. They didn't, you know, after a first kind of few reviews that were like kind of similar to your reaction, which was it takes it a while to get going, but once it gets going, wow, what a great movie. Yeah. Um, so, and then Warhorse. They're like screening it out in the hinterlands for people and not showing it. I'm not going to see it till the end of November, November 28th, which seems crazy to me. You know, I'm like that in so many words that uh, we, we our plan is and with all due respect, Sasha, we're going to just wait to show it to you guys that this community in late November. But that's what they said. Yeah, they said that. Right. I asked them. I said, can't can't I see this movie earlier? I don't understand why I can't. I mean. 
I feel like it's kind of crazy for them to do it because of all people out there, you know, I'm certainly somebody who will love the movie. I already know I will. And I could hand, I mean, they're not afraid of me. They're afraid of people who, well, I guess like you, who would hate the movie and talk about it early, I suppose. Other people have said, oh, yeah, it's the same. I'm not going to see a film and ignore a, uh, an embargo deal. If they say, listen, you can't talk about it until... Right, exactly. Six, I'm not going to go out there and ignore that. No, but I, but you I, don't I, put I, it on your predictions as best... Like, let's say everybody saw it, and then the gurus of gold or whatever, or gold derby, had to write down their predictions. Everybody takes Warhorse off their predictions. <laughs> well, that happens. That's true. Yeah, that's, that's going to happen. So, you know, that's what they're doing. But other people have said it's like a, it's like a strategy for... Um, Avatar was the same strategy that they used, you know, uh, that they, I guess they showed it out in the middle of America and then they showed it to the bloggers, but I don't remember it that way. I remember them showing footage in Comic-Con for Avatar and I remember seeing it pretty early myself and loving it, of course. Yeah. But I'm, I'm perplexed by this war horse thing. I've never seen anything like it in the, in the years I've been doing this. Usually, you know, they take an Oscar movie and they put Oscar people right in front of it early so they can write about it, you know. But they're trying something new, and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't work, I don't know. But they did the same thing with J. Edgar. They kind of held it to the last minute, too. And uh, now I'm having to wonder about, you know, We Bought a Zoom, Extremely Loud, and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, these movies that are still being held. I know Dragon Tattoo's not finished. Okay. Um, and, and I'm sure Extremely Loud isn't finished either. That's what um, they, the publicity department said. They said they're still working on it. Sure, that makes sense. So, um, by the way, the story that I just told you about, which I will send you, it's called "An Undertaker with Purple Nails." Oh, it's so great! <laughs> is it just a story, or is she writing a book, or does she have a blog? I bet she has a it's blog. A New York Times region uh, story written by a New York Times reporter named Corey Kilgannon, and it's posted on November fourth, and it's about this woman who runs the entire shop all on her own. No assistance. She picks up the bodies. She prepares them, everything. And uh, she kind of, you can imagine Sandra Bullock feeling being yeah. this person. I'll send it to you. At the end, does it say she has a blog? Yeah. Does it? Uh, I'm sorry, what? Does it say she has a blog at the end? Oh, hang on. Uh, at the end of the... Um, <clears throat> no. It says a version of this article appears in print today, which is the sixth. Oh, okay. Because a lot of times when you read about these eccentric characters, it's almost always tied into their blog. And I always wonder what uh, came first. Like, did they want to make a blog so they were homeless and they started living in their bus and then they made a blog about that and then they got a book deal? Like, uh, did they did they cultivate this eccentric lifestyle in order to write a blog in order to get a book deal? Or is it really just an innocent, this is a strange person doing a strange thing, you know? It's hard to know, but it sounds like she doesn't do a blog, so... And she has an annual Halloween party, of course. She put a Frankenstein figure in a full-size coffin. Uh, she also converted a large coffin into a couch by putting milk crates inside and laying cushions on them. Last year, she surprised the partygoers by popping out of a coffin, long legs first, in a tiny miniskirt. That's this so funny. By wearing a leather dominatrix outfit and singing a few Rolling Stones numbers with a backup band at midnight. Oh, okay, that's the scene that kills the movie. <laughs> Like she's into into trick <laughs> stuff. Yeah. yeah, they put that in the movie. It's over. <laughs> no. um, so, what about Charlize Theron? Could she play that part? 
Uh, yeah, she could. Mm. It's, a, it's a good part for Charlize Theron. It's a good part for any woman uh, who's like 40-ish, maybe late 30s, early 40s, mid-40s. It's really a good one. You know, I, I want to see this movie. All they have to do is come up with a good uh, arc, you know, a good story. I mean, this is basically just a character piece right now. But Well, it's... I hope they don't make it into like a, a rom-com, like a sappy rom-com where she's in love with the guy who, you know. <laughs> they could. It's a, they, could make a, they could make a TV series about a... Uh, a woman of this, they really could, just like, you know, the... Oh, yeah, the, totally. They could make a TV series. I hope they do it if they do it on HBO. Yeah, yeah. Those shows are so good. Um, so I guess we should talk quickly about J. Edgar, and then we'll talk about the Jason Reitman movie, which I did sure. not see, unfortunately, but I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. So um, uh, your view, um, uh, first, let's start with you about uh, J. Edgar. J. Edgar. Um, I was kind of like you. Like, I, I had heard that it was a bad movie, and I did not walk away thinking that was a bad movie. You know, um, I, I recognize that there are some things about it that are kind of clumsy, choppy. Right. But I think that what it's saved by the performances. And in the end, I was really, truly touched by the three characters, that the, the relationship between them, that J. Edgar, his lover, and, well, it's not his lover, but, you know, his companion, yep. played by Army Hammer, and then the secretary, played by Naomi Watts, and how she hid his files. Right. Didn't and she burn them or destroy them? I think she after he died. Well, they don't. Nobody really knows what happened to them. Right. Um, but I've been. Uh, you know, I was surprised. I uh, when I first saw uh, old J. Edgar, the old Leo makeup uh, in the trailer, <clears throat> I thought to myself, you know, I, this looks really a lot like makeup. But something happened. It's interesting because uh, DiCaprio is so avid and engaged. Oh my God, is he character. great? You kind of forget about the makeup. It stops being a problem. Really and truly, I, I believe, you know, the the one that kind of was a little jarring to me was Army Hammer. Like, I think if it was me, I would I would have his old age makeup out front earlier, so that we're oh. not so surprised when it shows up because it is really dramatic on him. He looks really old. I mean, he looks like he's ninety or something. Uh, it yeah. looks a little too old for me. I mean, I've I've seen he's supposed to be, I believe, in the seventies. I kind of wish they had picked. Well, what? no, because then we don't get to see Leo old, and Leo old was really good. Yeah, you know, he yeah. was really, really good. I'm not saying Army Hammer wasn't good as an old guy. He was. He's great, but the makeup is a little bit jarring at first, and then it takes a while to get used to it. But you do get used to it with all three of them. You know, as they grow old, it's a pretty good makeup job, I thought. Yeah, yeah. But Leo, I, I think that the takeaway from J. Edgar is two things. One, Lance Black's. Uh, sort of revisionist ideas about J. Edgar, which was he wasn't a pervert. You know, people write him off as a cross-dressing pervert. Oh, J. Edgar, what did he know? He was a cross-dresser. You know, and he kind of takes that and says, he wasn't a cross-dresser. He was gay. He was a gay man in a very powerful position, um, and he's a historical figure who's gay. And we should, you know, we should acknowledge that about him. And here is the guy that he was close with his whole life, you know, and, and this is who he left all his property to, who he had breakfast and or lunch and dinner with every single day and was in love with. You know, I mean, he doesn't ever show them having sex. There's one kiss scene. But, you know, I think that Dustin Lance Black really wanted to make that clear. And I think he does do that. Yeah. And so I give a lot of credit to Eastwood for bringing that message through. I think it's an important one. And. But the other takeaway, of course, is, is Leo's performance, which is just like his best ever. You know, he's so good in that part. Surprisingly good. Um, 
And he uh, has to play. He has to play J. Edgar's a young man all the way up till his dying days, you know. And he's he nails it. He's very very uh, immersed and uh, very uh, high targeted on on getting this guy, and he does find. But here's the problem uh, with um, uh, the performance, and it's not a small one, I'm afraid. But I did not ever believe that. J. Edgar Hooper sounded like that. I've listened to the man on YouTube clips, and I know that DiCaprio is a gifted mimic, but I don't know what that accent was. It just struck me as, um, I don't know, partly kind of uh, Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, partly, you know, he doesn't know hard R's, and uh, just a really strange pronunciation. Did you happen to remember how Billy Crudup played him in the Mike? Gold Man film, Public Enemies. I don't. I don't Billy remember Crudup, it very well. Very strangely, played him with a kind of a mid-Atlantic, almost a British accent, with a mincing voice. You know, high-pitched mincing, and not almost <laughs> an English accent. It was the strangest thing. I was, I got thrown by that, and then I, that sent me to the YouTube clips to try and hear his actual uh, speaking pattern. So, and Leah doesn't get it either. I don't know what it is, but it's just. What, let's put it this way. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't work. I, I'm aware all the time that, that he is using speaking as an actor with an accent he believes represents more or less how J. Edgar Hoover, the man, actually spoke. And I'm never not aware that he's an actor doing an accent. And you're not supposed to be thinking about that. Like with the makeup, as I acknowledged, you kind of forget about the makeup. And that means he's doing well with that performance. Mm -hmm. But you don't forget about that strange way he speaks and that is not advisable i think there's a certain point if the if the speaking manner or the accent which is acted which is created for the part if that becomes something that won't go away you keep noticing it it's a bad idea to abuse it hmm. i didn't really get that about the accent so much because he was consistent with it if it had dropped in and out all the way through i might have been annoyed but it was so consistent that every time he was back speaking it was you know, I was right in there with him. I've been up, down, all around. I've lived in the East. I've lived in the West. I've been everywhere. <laughs> I've never heard any human being speak like that. I'm telling mm -hmm. you. I just don't. I mean, I know that. Well, but that, don't you think that he researched it? I mean, I bet he did. I have no, to. I haven't. He's, he's exacting and meticulous. He's one of the. He, that's why he's a good actor. He's no. He doesn't just slough it off and just. You know. Uh, yeah. Of course, he researched it. I'm sure he did. Yeah. It doesn't sound. It doesn't sound right. I don't think it works. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it didn't, the accent didn't bother me so much. What I did notice was that it is so hard for a movie star to disappear in a role. You know, it really is. It's hard for somebody like George Clooney. It's hard for um, yeah. Leo. It's, it's, it's less hard for someone like Sean Penn, I guess, who really does disappear when he plays a part, like with Harvey Milk. He disappeared in that role. Yeah. You're never looking at it thinking that's Sean Penn. You, you believe it 100%. It's, it's uh, Harvey. Yeah, yeah. And and Daniel Day Lewis is somebody who can also totally morph himself over. I felt this uh, this kind of gay man's joy about himself and about who he who he was and what he was igniting uh, in his political life and the community of, of guys that he was with in San Francisco. There was genuine happiness in Sean Penn's uh, uh, manner as he played Harvey Milk, and that was very much like the real Harvey Milk if you've seen that wonderful documentary, The Times of Heart Milk. The man had lots of natural joy in him, and it was really infectious. Yeah. So. I mean, I, I, it, I'm not saying that Leo doesn't rise to that level. To me, he does. It's just for some 
Yeah. I just know for some actors, it's harder to, to totally disappear themselves. Now, this movie has been ex- exoriated. How <laughs> you pronounce that uh, term? I just, I just uh, re- I realized I don't know how the pronunciation right, but it's been lambasted. It's been... Oh, by whom? Gene gunned by uh, James Rocky. Uh, oh, right. like I care. Sorry, uh, James Rocky. But are there any actual critics who... who... No, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's so mean to say. I don't mean that. I take it back. I take it back. I'm just an Oscar blogger. <laughs> he's, a, he's a very smart fellow. And I know he, he is. hated it. So, uh, All right, but who else, to, though? I, I said this, and I think it's fair to say it is a moderately boring film because this man is a... Uh, but do we have any other critics besides James Rocky is what I want to know. Who have panned it? Yeah. Because well, I'm certainly have, not going to go by one guy like that. Uh, well, there's Chris is uh, a little, a little uh, sort of, you know. No, no, uh, I'm talking about like film critics, actual well, film critics. I know James Rocky is one, but like, um, you know, Todd McCarthy. Oh, Todd McCarthy wrote about it. He gave it a pass, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, Peter DeBruge and Variety did too. Uh, no, wait a minute. No, no, no. Did. no. De Bruges yeah, so didn't like it. He gave he, it a media. De Bruges, he was not um, uh, taken with it. He right, he wasn't. It, okay. It, it, uh, you know, it's incumbent upon a thing like this because you know J. Edgar Hoover had all the secrets, and um, you know you have to. It has to like deliver something intimate and strong about him, and it never quite gets there. Right. So, you know. I, f- I felt like people had their knives out for this though, really early on. I mean, I remember hearing um, that rumor in that screening room about how it was such a bad movie. And it was totally told by somebody um, who I trust and said that he heard that it was a bad movie and that the only good one in it was Army Hammer. Well, obviously that opinion's wrong because Leo is great in it and Naomi Watts is good in it. So it's not just Army Hammer. <laughs> Bless you. I can envision someone not wanting to simply hang out with a guy like this, this clenched and angry little tight ass. Yeah. Uh, However, the, the, I'm sorry to say, but the people that I was sitting with, all of them hated it. Okay. Hated it. Like, okay. just thought it was the worst movie they've ever seen. Well, you know, it isn't just how well the performance is rendered and, and how, uh, to, you know, how impassioned the actor is. And, and you know, Clint uh, always makes his films feel... Uh, there's a certain wholeness and completeness to how he composes his films. It's, they never feel slipshod. There's always this kind of uh, Eastwood signature. Mm-hmm. But it's really the character. You have to be, you know, content and interested in this character. And I wasn't terribly interested in him. I mean, it's quite obvious the man is a, he's a, he's a kind of a hammer, you know. And he's not really, um, he's a pretty reprehensible fellow when you l- look at his, um, his, particularly his relations with uh with Martin Luther King and, uh, and, you know, getting secrets on this president and that secret and, uh, you know, uh, being able to kind of blackmail his way into not being removed from the bureau. And, um, it's, he's a small, petty, little hard ass, little tragic figure. Mm-hmm. I don't, um, yeah, as pretty decent as the film was, I didn't really enjoy sitting there and I didn't really like hanging and waiting it out. You know, I, I, I I, I was. I said to myself, I'm not really that looking forward to another 90 minutes of this, about a half hour in. I, you know, I was stuck it out. But <laughs> what did you say? Like <laughs> sucked your soul out of your body or something? I just said to myself, <laughs> how many? How long have I got to go? That's what I did. I looked at the. I said, okay, another hundred minutes. And I was honest with myself. I said, look, 
let's just, you know, tough up here and, and get mm-hmm. through it. But I was not having a, a great time, although I could see it was, you know, pretty well done. So. Yeah. I, I didn't hate it. I, I still think that, that Eastwood is greatly misunderstood in the last, last part of his career. I think if I was around at the time when Alfred Hitchcock was making movies and he turned out Frenzy, Frenzy's not my favorite Hitchcock movie at all. But I think I would still have had, bless you. I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, sneezing. Oh. I don't know what it is. It, I'll tell you what I did. I woke up with a sore throat. Oh, no. I do not have a cold. Um, I have done a little bit of sneezing. So something's happening, but it's not something that feels that bad. But I do have a sore throat, and it's causing me to occasionally cough. Mm. Well, anyway, I was going to say that, uh, you know, if Frenzy had come out when I was a young person and, and I had gone to see it and all the critics panned it, you yeah. know, I mean, if I had was the same person I am now and I saw it, I, I still would be like, wow, it's an Alfred Hitchcock movie. <laughs> It might not be the best Alfred Hitchcock movie, but, you know, his worst is still better than most. And that's sort of my my thinking along the lines with J. Edgar and, and Eastwood's movies in general lately, is that, you know, even the worst of them are still better than most of the movies out there. And I think that's, he's... That's a fair thing. It's a, it's a better movie than, than many out there, and mm-hmm. he is not really capable, I don't think, of making a bad film. I don't either. No way. And, and there's, there's some sh- scenes in this movie that are just amazing to watch. Like, I loved... Like, for instance, Changeling is one of my favorite Eastwood movies only because of the ch- the, um, the uh, chicken-killing scenes. I, You know, the stuff with Angie, it's okay. It's a little depressing to watch because I think her performance is greatly flawed yeah. in it. I think she plays too way too helpless of a character, and it's not interesting. But all the stuff with the kid and the chicken ranch, and what Eastwood does, what he does so beautifully, is he has this kind of minor obsession with suffering children and it's throughout his whole um later part of his career it started with mystic river but it's in hereafter with the kids and it's in um uh forget about invictus i think that's probably his worst movie uh and then here it is again in j edgar you know it's like i don't know i mean i just think that the the certain scenes in j edgar where they're showing the Lindbergh baby, that's what I mean. I'm getting at the Lindbergh baby stuff. It's like the stuff with the chicken ranch. To me, when it veers off into these little stories, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's Eastwood doing what he's really good at, which is unearthing um, Los Angeles and American history. It's sort of a side of him that he doesn't exploit in his movies enough. Mm-hmm. He's too busy thinking about the main characters. But, God, I love the stuff with um, the, the weird exactitude with the Lindbergh, with, with Lindbergh himself and with how J. Edgar lied about it and how the country was obsessed with it and how fear of, um, of kidnapping and all that gave them so much power in the government. I don't know that I got a lot out of observing uh, a man in such ferocious denial mode and such defensive, angry, uh, rigid... Um, you know, guarded, uh, all, all kinds of hung up, you know, mother issues. And it's, yeah. it's not pleasant. I, I don't know that I was the, I don't know that anybody who was anything wrong with them for saying that they don't find it particularly, um, uh, you know, enlightening or, or, or exciting or diverting to hang out with this guy. That's what you're I doing. Know. You're hanging out with this guy for two hours. And, you know, we meet people at, at dinner. And uh, we say to myself, well, I, I think uh, I have an appointment, but very nice to have uh, chatted. And you cut it short because you don't like their company. <laughs> <laughs> but there's more to it than that because this is J. Edgar. This is how many presidents did he work under? 
And I love the shot of him always going into the Oval Office, and there's George Washington, and there's J. Edgar, and he goes in, and they're about to fire him, but he's bringing in a file so they can't fire him, and <laughs> how much he knew about people, and how he changed government, and, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's our history. It's something we have to look at, uh, I well, think. Can you be more specific? When do you believe he was about to get fired? Was it by FDR when he went to meet him? When was it exactly? I know that he had stuff on Mrs. Roosevelt and I guess on her. Yeah. No, I, I actually can't say that I did. The person that I saw it with saw that and explained it to me. But I didn't. there's a lot I didn't understand and don't understand. I don't know a lot about J. Edgar, I have to admit. Um, I don't know how many presidents he served under. I don't know what kind of power he had. Well, the Bureau was created in 35. I know they, they couldn't yeah. fire yeah. him because yeah. he was too powerful. Yeah. He did serve under uh, 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 Harding and 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 uh, Coolidge and uh, uh, Hoover, and uh, but uh, but as far as the FBI, the creation of it, that that began in 1935 with that name, and he was the, and uh, so he was under FDR, uh, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. Wow! Oh, until his uh, death in seventy. Two seventy three, something like that. I think. See, you got to admit that's pretty incredible. And wouldn't you love to know what was in those files? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, you know. Uh, one thing that I've never seen in the film, I've never seen <coughs> Martin Luther King's. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, his, he, he liked to have uh, recreational uh, uh, encounters with women in the hotel rooms, and this is an actual depiction of that. With, a, with the old-fashioned uh, uh, ruse of the silhouette. <laughs> God, <laughs> you know, that's so great. I'm going to have to watch it again because there's a lot I missed, and I must have missed that. I mean, I know that he that, that we see J. Edgar say, okay, when he's about to give his I, I, um, when he's about to accept the Nobel Peace Prize, and J. Edgar says he's not going to accept it. He's going to turn it down. And so why did he think he was going to turn it down? Well, because he had all the tapes of his uh, peccadillos and how it would make him look good. Hoover was, um, felt that he was a degenerate because he cantered around, um, and he felt that he could do- torpedo him. Uh, that wasn't really followed up on. Why didn't he torpedo him? Why didn't he release these tapes to the press and come out with it? It never happened. Uh, to, I mean, it kind of leaked out over the years. Particularly God, after. I didn't know that. That's so amazing. I didn't know that Martin Luther King did that. And so when he's listening to that sex tape, is that Martin Luther King? Oh, yeah. No, that's the, uh, you have to understand that. But, uh, Martin Luther King did have a whole, uh, you know, recreational, private uh, part of his life during his, um, uh, during his high point years, uh, early, mid, late 60s. Uh, that's, that's definitely true, what I read and heard all along. So it's, and there are books that, uh, <clears throat> and one of the things that you might recall that there have been, is it two or three Martin Luther King movies? The one that <clears throat> was, um, did not go. Uh, I know that there was an issue about how much they were going to get into the girlfriends and the hotel, um, escapades mm-hmm. and that, that can't be ignored. But I, I think that one of them, and I can, I know I did a little uh, reading and kind of re-reporting uh, based upon other people's actual reporting, but I do know something about it, but I can't remember the particulars. I know that one kind of uh, that, that um, <clears throat> Paul, Paul Greengrass was going to direct 
one of them. And I think that was the more nervy of the two or three. Wow, that's so interesting. God. Well, I don't know that in today's context anybody's gasping that much at the idea. Well, I kind of am. I didn't know. I didn't know that about him. I mean, I, I guess I can never, you can never underestimate the libido of a, of a male, of a male of our species. I mean, I, you know, I feel sorry for the ones that are trapped in marriages or whatever and can't um, get laid. <laughs> but I just didn't know Martin Luther King was one such individual, you know. That's pretty well established from what I understand of the, of the facts. <clears throat> you can read up on it. It's very easy. Yeah, I will. I will. I just didn't know about it until I saw the, the J. Edgar. Was okay, that so, a um, sneeze? Huh? Was that a sneeze? Uh, I tried to muffle a slight cough. Okay. <laughs> All right, so now we got to move on to young adult. Yeah, which is a... Um, um, the more I have thought about it, the, uh, the more... Um, uh, respect I have for it because of what they didn't do. What they what they do is they have a, a neurotic and fairly unlikable female character played by Charlize Theron, who's a uh, an author of <clears throat> young adult fiction. Although she's not the author, she's the actual writer as opposed to the name person that writes these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, about basically going back to her hometown rather impulsively, deciding that she and her ex-boyfriend, a guy named Buddy, Buddy Slade, uh, played by Patrick Wilson, uh, have a future and and she can make this right and they can work it out and get past the slight complication that he's married, in love with his wife, and he has a daughter that has just been delivered. She wants to steal him away. Mm-hmm. Uh, because she, she feels, uh, you know, on some level, she feels that you know, you're he's he should he can do better than just be a small town guy, and live in this uh, relatively you know contained and not very exciting existence in this small town. I think it's called Mercury in Minnesota, and uh, she is the one to kind of like you know make her life whole. Now, <clears throat> the, as you get to know her in this film, you see that there is uh, a serious. Uh, uh, Blockage, a serious divorcement from reality. Um, she's pretty. Uh, she's attractive as hell. So why is it that she's fixating upon an ex-boyfriend? Uh, why does she not pay attention to the obvious fact that he's that the likelihood of getting him to leave his wife with a young baby is zero to none? You know, uh, but she doesn't listen, and you start to realize that she's not just, uh, you know, neurotic, but maybe even psychotic. There's something really wrong with her. Wow, really? It's it's like, um, you know, you start to think that she's maybe like, well, like Jack Nicholson in The Shining, maybe a little bit like um, Jack Nicholson in Five Easy Pieces, maybe, uh, you know, he ends up uh, at the end not without any big change in his manner, his personality. And these are basically uh, stories about... A person with an issue, with a problem, with a you know, a, a personality issues of a pretty profound, persistent nature, and they don't do anything about them at the end. There isn't that third act uh, growth moment, you know, a realization moment where they're going to try and change their game. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, she does something that I don't want to spoil uh, at the very end that is pretty awful. I think. Uh, 
when you think she might at least be having a soft moment, a wise moment where she's going to be a little, get a little lesson out of this, and she doesn't really have that lesson. So it's mm. it's going to die. Uh, there's no question about it. The average person yeah. to see this is not going to like this woman. I hear you. To tell their friends, hey, you got to see this. It's so great. You know, she's such a monster. You know? Well, when but, you first started telling me about it, it, it reminded me of my best friend's wedding with Julia Roberts, where she plays a girl who comes down to town and tries to break up the marriage of her, the guy she likes, you know. Yeah. Yep. And she's horrible. She does all these horrible things, but she's Julia Roberts, and there's no movie's going to let you get away with thinking she's horrible. That movie would have just sunk like a stone. But of course, she comes back and she's rede- redeemed, and she you know she realizes the error of her ways. And you know, um, I, I so admire this idea that Jason Reitman and, and Diablo Cody are really just going for this. You know, it blows my mind that anybody would have that kind of courage to just say, "We're going to create." This one thing I love about Di- Diablo Cody as a writer. And I'm so amazed by her and that she has the power to do it because now she's an Oscar-winning screenwriter, is that she really wants to, both in her own career and in her work, she wants to transform the typical female roles, the, you know, the archetypes. Like she did that in Jennifer's Body, which nobody liked. It's a terrible movie, but I liked what she was doing with the female characters in that. And um, I like... You know, she kind of did it with Juno a little bit, and she's certainly doing it here with young adults. She's putting Charlize Theron in a role that only a guy would ever play in a movie. And she's saying, fuck it. <laughs> you know, women, are, women have a lot of different sides to their personality, and a lot of women are just bitches and cunts, you know? And here's a movie that is actually showing that and, and not making her, and not, you know, using another character to kind of lift it up and redeem it. They're just saying... You know, uh, between Juno, which is uh, not quite as soft and as cuddly as a movie as people remember, and uh, and this one, and her next one, which is called Lamb of God, which is, uh, she is writing uh, women that I have not met at all in, in films before, and it's right, exciting right. that someone is coming up with new paradigms, new, new concepts of what a woman character could be, um, and uh, so she's, she's really doing it. I know, so. and I'm I'm amazed. And I know she gets a lot of uh, people hate on her a lot. They don't like her. They don't like an upstart with tattoos. And, you know, she's, I, I will admit, as a female, she, I find her slightly annoying. <laughs> but that's okay. I don't care. It's all, you know, my own personal comfort with her is beside the point, way beside the point. I really admire what she's doing. And I, you know, I can't always say that I support her, but I, I can say that I did not hate Jennifer's body. I didn't. And, um, not hate Jennifer's body? I didn't hate it, no. Okay. And I'm really looking... I thought it was funny as hell. I mean, I didn't really like the end, the way it craps out at the end, but, God, it was funny the very first part of it. All the, I mean, she's a, she's a daring chick, man. She's got balls. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm excited to see what she does with this movie. I'm not close-minded to it anymore, as I was before, because uh, I did think it was going to be one of those she's a bitch until she's redeemed at the end. I'm amazed at the fact that she's not redeemed. I'm really nope. excited to see and that. And that's, uh, you know, um, uh, there is a scene uh, that people have mentioned, I can at least briefly describe it, in which she unloads her uh, feelings and her anger about uh, this dream, dreamed of, fantasized about uh, relationship with Buddy uh, that she's going to, she wants to steal away. That's not going to happen. She get kind of freaks and just loses it. <clears throat> it is it is one of the most excruciating scenes to, to watch. Your, uh, your, your hand... You know that that involuntary gesture that some of us make. If we just yeah. 
can't deal with what we're seeing or hearing. You know, your hand goes to your mouth. It's one of those. Oh, and, I can't uh, wait. I can't wait. And, and the other thing I like about that is that when I first conceived of Young Adult and I had heard about it and read about it, and I saw who they cast, and it was Charlize Theron, and I thought, that's so stupid. There's no way a pretty girl like that is ever going to have any sort of insight to go back to her. Because I, I was sort of misreading what I thought the movie was. But now that I hear what it's about, it's just absolutely perfect casting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because yeah. a lot of women who are that good-looking do feel entitled to what they want, you know? Because everything's been handed to them. Alcohol is definitely an issue. At one point she says, I think I am an alcoholic. That's that's certainly part of it. But even alcoholics are not this ill-mannered and not, not this um, <clears throat> really just loony. I mean, it's like, I don't know how to put it, but it's it's amazing that they're saying that. So you, why do you think it's going to sink? Is it not funny or? No, it's not that funny. But it, it is it is if you understand her type of humor. I laughed at much of it all the way through. I, cer- I certainly loved <clears throat> the lines that uh, Patton Oswalt has as her um, kind of, uh, I guess he's the guy who, who gets her right away and understands what she's doing, and she tells them what he's she's doing. So he's like the reality guy who says, you know, you really need to get some therapy. Um, you know, I think he's married. I don't think he wants to leave his wife. You know, he, he just drops in those lines every now and then, just because you know this is the reality check guy and. Um, He's funny, and she's got some great. There's, it's, it's funny for me, and it's going to be funny for you. And but I don't know that most people are going to find what she's about funny. They're going to find this woman reprehensible. Is that. it like, is it like butter, kind of, you know, butter? Oh, the the film in which we are not supposed to like Jennifer um, um, Garner. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, she was supposed to be a kind of a parody of a, um, a kind of a radical right, a Christian right, Tea Party woman, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, this is not parodistic or parody-like. It's a um, it's a it's an original character. So, can I just say, without spoiling it, what happens to her in the end? I mean, is it total misery? Is it like the Lost Weekend? Is it you know? She uh, <clears throat> decides that she's better than uh, than this. That she doesn't need Buddy, and she's uh, goes off back to Minnesota to live her life. Uh, but her mantra or her speech is like, you know, I'm, you're right. I am better than this. I can, I can, I, I've um, let myself down by acting this way. I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I'm destined for greater things. Um, that's more or less what she says. I'm so excited to see it, and I'm so supportive of Diablo Cody. I just want you to know that. I know you think that I was down on the movie, and I'm not down on Jason Reitman or the movie. I just. You know, my annoyance level has definitely has a shelf life. <laughs> I can only take so much. But I, I'm so amazed at both of them for taking this kind of risk. I'm just stunned and amazed. Um, so do we think any sort of action is going to happen with uh, Oscar here? Uh, well, I believe very confidently. I don't see any doubt in my own. Uh, I've thought about it since uh, a lot. And I think that Patton Oswalt is definitely in the best supporting actor realm. I don't know that Charlize is uh, because of this. <clears throat> as you know, it's not just how good the person is at inhabiting a role. Uh, you know, It's not just the performance. It's do you like the character? Right, I know. I know, I hear you, but they like Charlize. Huh? They like Charlize, and that's going to count for a lot. 
They might oh. not like Denzel Washington winning the Oscar for Training Day. Uh, his horrible was, character. Uh, he was wickedly charismatic. Yes. Uh, not wickedly charismatic. She is flip and dry and bitterly funny, but in a self-destructive way. Is it the kind of movie like most women are going to watch and go, "Oh, I hated that. I, I hated that well, character." I could see. I certainly see some people, um, uh, you know, not liking it at all. I mean, I was having a real rough time with this blowout scene on the front lawn uh, during a party. Because uh, you were I uncomfortable with it? Uh, it was, took me a while to recover from the hor horridness of that scene. Really? But I, but I did recover, and I started to see what had been done, what they had, you know, actually done with this film and the brazenness of it. And so, you know, the respect came afterwards, but I was kind of like, oh, my God, that was awful. You know, wow. Awful. God, it's that bad, huh? I mean, she's that... I'll, I'll say this: if you're, if you have a hunger for someone that is just doesn't have that makes no sense, but you have it anyway, and let's say that you've had two or three mixed drinks and you don't have your composure about you, I think even a psychotic person, drunk, would pr probably try to uh, say their say in front of the guy, maybe with the wife there, you know, maybe three of them. Something like that, uh, but not in front of an entire party. I'm talking yeah. about 25 or 30 people and more or less addressing a group the way a politician would address a small group at a whistle stop or something. It, it is excruciating to, to, um, to consider the scene and what's going on. It's, it's, it's brutal. It's really rough stuff. Wow, no kidding. Good for them, though. Yeah, I, I'm not going to forget that one. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you'd be, can we go off the records? You can tell me exactly what happens because I'm not really getting it, I don't think. What happens? Let's go off the record for a minute. Um, one thing people don't understand about what it means to be a woman is you're always just like five minutes away from an emotional breakdown. It's like if it's not your hormones and, uh, you know, your emotions, whatever it is, it's, it's not an easy thing being a woman. And I'm sure that, that, uh, I love that Diablo Cody's sort of unleashing that truth. You know, we're, we're so typecast as like all sweet or all bitches or, you know, whores or whatever. But, you know, women are pretty, pretty complex. Um, I myself must fight off a nervous breakdown every single day. <laughs> no, I'm, <just> kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. But I, I would, I can't wait to see it. I hope that they're screening it again soon. You know, they have, so. as you know, been screening it around the country, and it, uh, it is going to open, what, in early December, I believe. So uh, these, now that it has been shown and people have vented uh, reactions, um, I don't think it would be any problem in starting to show it pretty soon to, you know, on a regular basis. Yeah. Because yeah. they're going to need people like you and myself and, and others because uh, unless I'm really wrong and I don't get what people are like, I just think people are going to be astonished and they're going to run, not walk in the opposite direction when this film opens, but we'll see. It would be nice to see it at least make its money back and not be a wipeout. I'd like to see it at least hang in there and people kind of get it on the, on the level that I eventually got it on. I think if they can get over their Diablo Cody hate, you know, um, that they will like it. I mean, I have a feeling that people will talk about it. You know, younger people like uh, high school girls are going to get into this, you know, because because there is such an absence of these kind of characters. People love it when people are really bad, you know. And I'm 
they, they can take it on TV. They can take these kind of women on TV, but they can't take them in the movies. So um, I think that so it's... So in a reality television show, they might be able to roll with a character like this. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I'm... You know, I'm I'm just keeping an open mind about that. I'm not sure that I think the public is going to disdain it. I do think the Academy will probably disdain it. Um, I'm fairly certain that's probably going to happen. I just have yeah. a sense that the older people are, are not going to have any place to put this. They're going to know. They're going to say this is uh, really, uh, this is beyond more than I can take. Yeah, sure, they are because the Academy's experience is them with the movie and their honest take on the movie they don't they're not pressured because people are watching them they're not critics who everybody reads their reviews they're it's just a personal i liked it i didn't you know and i just wanted to say that i just want to say before we close that you know it's an interesting year for best picture you know you and i had talked about warhorse earlier which is that we're dealing with a kind of scenario that's never happened in the history of the oscars which is that they're only vote they're only taking movies that got number one votes a significant number of number one votes okay. to, to start with uh-huh. Like, you, let's say you need 150 number one votes to get into the second round. And so for the second round, then they go to the number twos and the number threes and the number fours. But the first thing that has to happen is you have to get at least, I think it's 150 or so number ones. Mm-hmm. So we have to think about that. This is what, what makes it so that Harry Potter won't be in the race. And this is what could hurt Hugo and, and you know, movies where... Um, a man of like let's say your age, right? Um, and kind of walk, you know, the sort of the demographic that you are, picking a movie that has like a kid at the center of it, as number one. Mm-hmm. You know, not a lot, a lot of them are going to do that. I don't think they're going to want something harder edged, maybe. And so I think it's interesting that we have all these movies that are really sentimental this year, mm-hmm. very very emotional sentimental movies like The Artist. And The Descendants, and um, Extremely Loud, and uh, what else? Um, Midnight in Paris. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't have a lot of... The only thing coming that could kind of cut through all the competition is Dragon Tattoo. It's the only one that's going to be different. It's the only one that's not going to be kind of sentimental. Warhorse sentimental. Hugo sentimental. the artist is rather sentimental. And the yeah. artist, sure. They all are. The only one that isn't is going to be Dragon Tattoo. Yeah. So I'm keeping my eye on that one. Looking forward to that very, very much. I'm sure it's going to be delightful, uh, Dragon Tattoo. I think it's going to be a real turn on and a charge. And I'm oh, yeah. Much- Same here. I can't wait. We're both Fincher fans anyway, so, you know. All right. All right. Nice. We're going to wrap it up. We've done our usual what 90 minutes (laughs) (laughs) long long time oscar poker ramble but we didn't do one last week we didn't even talk about the savannah film festival but i guess that's old news so uh yeah i don't think we should go any longer on this no no okay but but listen have a nice sunday and i'll talk to you soon i want to tell you something after we hang up okay let me just stop recording and then but i'll talk to you next week okay be well okay You've been listening to Oscar Poker, episode 54, with Jeffrey Wells from HollywoodElsewhere.com and Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at OscarPodcast. And our bumper music today was Let's Do It Again by the Staple Singers and a cover of More Than This by the 10,000 Maniacs. Thanks for listening. I could feel it.